Welcome to CTSI Science Cafe, a community engagement initiative of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. This program is recorded in front of our live community audience at St. Anne's Center for Intergenerational Care, Bucyrus Campus in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This June 2019 Science Cafe features a presentation and community conversation titled, Don't Lose Heart, The Impact of Cancer Treatment on the Heart. Our guest presenters are Dr. Carmen Burgum, Assistant Professor, Department of Radiology, Oncology, and Dr. Nora Dabuse, Assistant Professor, Department of Cardiovascular Medicine, both at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Here first, is Dr. Carmen Burgum. Thank you very much. We're both very honored to speak to you today. And today I'm going to be talking to you about the field of cardio-oncology and the role of physicians like myself and Dr. Debuse and how we can help to prevent and decrease the likelihood of cardiotoxicity in cancer patients and also how cardiotoxicity can be treated. So I'm gonna give a little bit of background about cardio-oncology today and then I'm also gonna discuss in a little bit more detail some of the research going on in my lab and then also talk about how radiation therapy treatments have been modified over the years in order to decrease the amount of radiation received by the heart and how that's very exciting for us radiation oncologists to be able to give treatments that really can lead to decreased cardiac toxicity for cancer survivors, which we have more and more of today. So the field of cardio-oncology, it's really a multidisciplinary field, meaning that a number of different specialists work together in order to best manage patients. And just like the name implies, it's the merging together of cardiac biology, cardiac medicine, cardiology, and cancer treatment. So uh, medical oncologists who give systemic treatment and radiation oncologists who give radiation treatment. And we work together in order to identify patients who through part of their cancer treatments in order to treat best treat their cancer and in many cases cure their cancers may be at risk or may develop cardiac dysfunction or heart damage. We work together to identify these patients and send them to a, either a multidisciplinary clinic or a cardio-oncology clinic and then help to best manage any potential toxicities. So um, as mentioned in the introduction, I'm a radiation oncologist. I also run a research lab. And so I mainly treat breast cancer patients. And through my clinical practice, it was very sobering for me to realize that some of our treatments that we give to cure cancers or to treat cancers and prevent them from recurring or to alleviate <coughs> symptoms can cause really long-term side effects. And that really led me to want to study that as part of the research I have in my laboratory. And so what we have done in our laboratory is developed some different preclinical models that allow us to study the development of chemotherapy-induced or radiation-induced cardiac toxicity. And in our model that we've developed, it's very exciting because we've actually found that some, you could think of it like natural variations in the DNA sequence or genetic sequence of animals in a very small part of the DNA, just a few percent of your total DNA, can actually result in much different responses to radiation to the heart. 
very dramatic differences. And so what we're trying to do is identify what are these genetic changes that occur and do they occur in patients? One of the big challenges in the clinic is when we see a patient who may have a tumor near the heart and need to get radiation therapy or systemic therapy to best treat their tumor, we don't know who is at the most risk to get cardiac toxicity. We, for example, we don't have a blood test. We can say, oh, we know we want to give you X and Y treatment. There is a risk of cardiac toxicity. Let's see how high of a risk, how high of a risk you personally are to have one of these cardiac toxicities to have heart damage after these therapies. We would love to have a blood test and we say, you're at very high risk, so we need to do these special modifications and personalize your therapy. Or you're at a lower risk, so we can give the, the exact plan therapy we thought and you have a really, really low risk of side effects. Right now, we don't have anything like that. And so what we're trying to do in the laboratories, identify potential, what we call biomarkers, that we can use to identify patients who are at high risk or at low risk to really personalize their therapy. And the end result would be to have a lower incidence or have lower percent of patients that do have heart damage after their treatments. Those are some exciting studies going on in our laboratory. And the other thing that our model allows us to do is to test different drugs or different compounds that may either prevent radiation or chemotherapy-induced heart disease, or once it's developed, can decrease its severity. And so that's another thing that we are studying in our lab, and it's very exciting and challenging work. That's kind of the basic laboratory studies going on, and what we want to do with that once we get these targets is to see if they are validated in patients. Does this really predict whether or not a patient may or may not be at risk of these toxicities and then better manage them? This leads us back to the clinic. And so as I mentioned, I treat breast cancer patients and I do treat with radiation therapy. So what I see in my patients, a lot of them may receive some dose of radiation to the heart. And many of those patients have also received chemotherapy. A very commonly used chemotherapy in many breast cancers is a drug called adriamycin or doxorubicin. Those types of chemotherapeutic agents can be very, what we call, cardiotoxic or can cause cardiac damage. And so we know patients who have had this class of drugs may have some heart damage down the line. And if they also get radiation therapy incidentally to the heart, they have a higher risk of damage. And this isn't just breast cancer that these kind of drugs are used in. Many other cancers, such as sarcomas or lymphomas or other cancers, commonly use these class of agents because they do work very well against certain types of cancer. And so as a radiation oncologist, we are very cognizant of trying to do our best to decrease that heart dose. And this has really evolved over time because I actually just talked the other day to somebody who'd been in practice I want to say over 50 years. He's been in practice a long time since kind of the beginning of radiation oncology field. And he was talking about my research with me and he said, you know, when we first started treating with radiation therapy, his boss at the time, he said, he told me, you know, don't worry about the heart because we don't see toxicity from the heart. Worry about the other organs, worry about the lungs or other things, but we don't see cardiac toxicity. It seems to be really resistant to radiation. And initially, it does look like the heart's pretty resistant a lot of times, but a few years down the line, you can see cardiac changes and cardiac damage that can result in pretty severe cardiac outcomes or cardiac diseases. And so over time, as patients were followed up more, this was realized. 
and people started to pay more attention to the dose received by the heart. And radiation therapy overall has dramatically improved in its targeting over time. And there have been a few really big advancements that have helped us to improve radiation therapy overall, but also to decrease the amount of dose that the heart gets when treating cancers in the chest area, such as breast cancer or lung cancer or esophageal cancer or some stomach cancers. One of the big advancements is going from what we call two-dimensional radiation therapy using x-rays to target the radiation and not really knowing exactly where all the doses are going spatially and three-dimensional. You know, and you'd calculate in a, a couple planes what dose, say, the tumor was getting or the breast was getting, but you didn't know if there was a hot spot in a certain area or what dose the heart was getting, for example. In the relatively recent past, we made a big change to three-dimensional radiation therapy. And that kind of radiation therapy utilizes CT scan to plan the radiation. And so when someone comes from you for radiation, one of the first things we do in the start of their plan is we get what we call a planning scan. The patient gets in the treatment position, put their arms in a cradle for breast cancer. So they are in a very reproducible position. So every day when they come for therapy, they get set up in the exact same position. I get a CT scan of the treated area. And then my homework begins. And what we do is we actually trace out on every slice of that CT scan, the, the outside of the patient, the heart, the lungs, in the case of breast cancer, the breast, the site of the tumor, and maybe lymph nodes if we're treating that. And then we have this three-dimensional model in the computer of the patient, and that allows us to design our beams. We can shape the beams, we can change the angles of the beams, we can change the energy of the beams, the amount of beams from one side versus another, and develop a really nice plan in which we know where all of the dose is distributed within the tissue. That has a couple of really great improvements for patients because we can have less hot spots. You might see less toxicities, say in the skin, for example, with breast cancer. Um, and also, we can really tailor how much dose goes to the heart and lungs and keep them at what we consider relatively safe levels, albeit levels that still can have side effects. And so 3D conformal therapy or 3D radiation has really um, allowed us to even track heart doses. And when we look at heart doses and look even at old studies where we can track and guess how much the heart received, that led us to really realize that even lower doses of radiation to the heart can cause long-term side effects. And it's a linear relationship. So the higher the dose of radiation to the heart, the more likely you are to get a long-term cardiac side effect. Okay, so if we can, it could on every patient, we would get their heart dose to zero, but that's not always possible, especially in patients with left-sided tumors. So we've had additional advancements beyond even just 3D therapy alone that have also helped us to decrease heart doses. For example, in breast cancer, because that's what I treat, we at times can position patients in different positions for their treatment. Sometimes we treat patients lying on their belly instead of their back. And for some patients, when they lie on their belly, their treated breast falls away from their body and it falls away from the heart and lungs. And often in the case of left-sided lung cancer patients, we can have less dose received by the heart in certain patients based on their anatomy. So that's one technique that we have used here at MCW for over 20 years. But I would say in the last five to 10 years, there's been additional technologies that have been utilized that are very exciting and really have, I think, led to dramatic decreases in the already lower cardiac radiation exposures. One of them is quite clever, something called deep inspiration breath hold, 
or D-I-B-H. And what happens when you take a big breath, if you think about it, you take a breath, your chest expands. And when that happens, actually, you have this muscle at the bottom of your lungs that's kind of a dome shape. And when you take a big breath, that dome straightens out, your lungs expand, the chest moves out, and your heart is in the middle of the chest a little bit more to the left side, but it's in the middle of that. When you take that breath, the heart moves down with that muscle, the diaphragm, and your chest moves out and moves the breast, which is the treated area in breast cancer, away from the heart. We performed a review of the literature on this, of all those studies that had been published at the time, this was a couple years ago, and also looked at our own data, and what this kind of technology means as far as dose reduction for patients is that we take the already lower doses we have using 3D planning and reduce that an additional 30 to 70 percent. So we take a you know, lower heart dose already and reduce that more. So what happens is we make use of the fact that when you take a deep breath, your heart moves away from where those beams are going to be going. So what happens, a patient comes in and they actually get treated. We have them take a breath and hold it for about 10 to 15 seconds and the beam comes on for that time and then they relax, take some normal breaths, the beam comes off when they relax and then they take another big breath. And we actually have technology that can tell when the surface of your chest or your breast is in the proper position and lets us know if you aren't in that proper breath hold position. So it's really advanced technology that allows us to do that. So that's very exciting. And then another technique that is used sometimes to decrease heart dose, and it isn't available here, but is available in some other centers, is something called proton therapy. And instead of using high-powered x-rays, which is what I've been talking about here, which is called external beam radiation therapy, it actually treats with protons, which are particles. And I'm not gonna go into the physics of this, but what you can do when there are particles that interact with your tissue is develop treatment plans where the beams come in but can stop and not hit the main part of the heart. These are only available in a few centers and they have not been used as long for breast cancer treatment. And so it isn't used often, but sometimes if I have patients who, for example, might get treated again on the left side because maybe they had a recurrence and they already had a lot of heart dose before. If they're able to, I'll refer them to at least go to a proton center to have a consultation to see if it might be a better treatment to spare some of their normal tissue, such as the heart. And the nearest center to us is in Northern Illinois. Another important part of my role as a radiation oncologist and as an oncologist is the follow-up of my patients. And so I think it's very important in patients who are at risk of cardiac changes after their treatments or who have developed cardiac symptoms that they go and see a specialist. We do send patients to see the cardiac oncologist quite frequently. And so I'm gonna let Dr. Debusse talk to you about what happens when she has a patient referred to her and what her role is. Presenting next is Dr. Nora Debusse. I'm a cardiologist. That's a heart doctor. I thought I was gonna be a cancer doctor and I had my first cardiology rotation and I fell in love. The pathophysiology, the studies, the research, we had all these answers. Cardiology studies involve tens of thousands of patients. We know what treatments are gonna save lives. We know what treatments aren't gonna save lives. So imagine if you have a child who has a leukemia and they go on to get their leukemia therapy and it turns out they beat the cancer. And then 10 years later you say, well, what's going on with their heart? And that's really how the field of cardio-oncology was born. So it was noticed several years ago that patients who were survivors of cancer did not live as long as their counterparts who did not have cancer. And so researchers started looking into this and saying, you know, what's going on? 
and they noticed that patients were developing a lot of heart problems. And one of the earliest studied damaging cancer therapies is the therapy that Dr. Bourbon mentioned, which is the anthracycline class or doxorubicin. It's a red chemotherapy. It treats leukemia, it treats lymphoma, it treats breast cancer, it treats sarcoma, it treats a lot of different cancers and it's highly effective. So you tell somebody, you know what, we can give you this therapy, we can cure your cancer, but you have a 10 to 20% risk of developing heart problems down the line. So basically what you do is you replace one problem with another. This is the field of cardio-oncology. So we all think about cancer, we're all worried about cancer, but the number one disease still in the United States that kills people the most is cardiovascular disease. We have screenings for cancer that can help people, but we really don't have good screenings for cardiovascular disease. So even in patients who don't develop problems with their heart because of the cancer therapy that they have, we have to think about heart disease because in the general population, this tends to kill people more. And there are a lot of shared risk factors between cancer and heart disease. What are these risk factors? Diet, lack of exercise, getting older, smoking, alcohol, weight gain, not moving as much, not exercising as I mentioned. And so some of these risk factors are shared, and so some people just have the awful luck of they're at higher risk for cancer and they're at higher risk for heart disease. And there's an overlap in these risk factors. So I see patients in my clinic, and there's really a few groups of patients that I see. So some patients that I see are patients that I've been following you know, for weeks or months, years, who have known heart problems and all of a sudden they develop signs of cancer, they're diagnosed with cancer. And so these patients, for me, I've already known their history and such, but then I have to think about what cancer therapies or treatments are they gonna get? And are there any further things that we can do to try to decrease the risk of not only not really responding to the cancer therapy as well, but decrease their risk of developing heart problems, either from the cancer itself or from cancer therapies. I see another group of patients who, for whatever reason, their treating cancer doctor says, you know, you don't have heart disease, but something about you or something about the therapy you're gonna get is gonna put you at higher risk. And there's lots of things that put you at higher risk for heart problems after cancer therapy. And so a lot of my cancer doctor colleagues, including Dr. Bergen, will say, can you just take a look at this patient for me? Is there anything that we can do to try to protect their heart when they're getting cancer treatment? Another group of patients I see, healthy patient, diagnosed with cancer, starts to get therapies, responding well, their tumor is shrinking, they're doing very well. Lo and behold, they develop either symptoms or signs of heart problems. And that can be just for monitoring, you know, the physician takes pictures of their hearts because the therapy that they're getting might cause weakening of the heart muscle. Or there are patients who come in one day they say, you know what, I can't breathe. When I lay flat, I can't breathe, I have to sit up to catch my air. My legs are swollen, my belly is bloated, I'm gaining weight and I'm not eating more. And so they say, you know, let's check your heart, let's have you see Dr. Debusse or another cardio-oncologist. And I see these patients and sometimes when I see them, they're actually in what we call heart failure. And what is heart failure exactly? All it is is your heart is not able to manage the blood and the fluid in your body as well as it would had you not had the heart failure. So some people have a weakened heart muscle some people don't have a weakened heart muscle. Their heart muscle is just stiff. Either way, the heart isn't moving the blood forward effectively, and when that happens, it's just a pressure system. Things back up and fluid can leak, and fluid can back up, and the heart doesn't do a good job of keeping things forward. And for those patients, we can start some therapies. And then the last group of patients that I see, I would say, are patients who are survivors. In other words, they've been through everything. Maybe they developed heart problems, maybe not, but for whatever reason, they started seeing me, and I just check in on them every year or so because I'm worried, I'm concerned that there's a higher risk that they might develop heart problems down the line. 
So patients might include patients that Dr. Bergen mistreated, you know, and for all that she's done to try to limit their risk, some patients still remain at higher risk. You know, what if the tumor is really right on top of the blood vessel that we affectionately call the widow maker? Because when people have a heart attack in that vessel, they can die if they're not treated. Or what if the patient had a lot of radiation to the lining of the heart? So you, know, you think of the heart as this one organ, but it has so many functions and so many parts. There's the blood supply, you know, it's like the plumbing. There's the electricity, there's the pump, and then there's the valves, there's the lining. A lot of different parts of the heart can be damaged during radiation. Cancer itself can also increase risk of blood clots. And we try to diagnose these quickly enough, but there's certain cancers that we know have higher risk of blood clots. And some doctors will even put their patients who are at higher risk on blood thinners before they even develop blood clots. You know, these are conditions like really advanced metastatic pancreatic cancer, in some cases, myeloma, so different conditions. And these are areas that are still a little bit controversial. And why is that? Well, I told you when I started talking that I like cardiology because these studies involve tens of thousands of patients. But what about these studies when we really take a dive at them? Guess which patient population gets excluded more often than not in these big studies? Patients who've had cancer. And so I see patients in my clinic and I say, I'm a heart doctor and I have a special interest in seeing patients who've had cancer therapies, cancer diagnoses. And the truth of the matter is, it is a new emerging field, and we're sort of still learning what to do. And the guidelines are there, but the guidelines are very vague. And what are guidelines? Basically, guidelines are just a summary of all the research and literature that's published by a group of elite physicians who tell you, this is what we can conclude from all these different studies. The guidelines aren't always right, they change, and they can be very vague as well. So for example, somebody who's had radiation to their chest, one doctor might say, you need a stress test. Well, this is not black or white. If somebody's exercising 200 minutes a week and they're doing okay, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But sometimes I'll look at them and I'll say, you know, I'm really concerned about the dose of radiation that you received to your chest. And I call up my good friend, Dr. Bergen, and I say, what do you think about this patient? She says, you know, we use these techniques, we try to limit the risk, but you're right, maybe their risk is a little bit elevated. Or we think, well, maybe I can put them on a cholesterol pill to try to limit their risk. And so these are some of the things that we can do to monitor patients. What are some things that patients can do to protect themselves when they're getting cancer therapy? In some people, they have high blood pressure. Lowering the blood pressure can help protect the heart. In some patients, their cholesterol is high. Putting them on a cholesterol pill can help protect the heart. Some patients don't exercise as much as they themselves admit to me they should be. And exercise is such a powerful drug that if it really were a drug, it would almost be malpractice to not give this drug to everybody who's receiving cancer therapy, and certainly everybody, period. But exercise not only increases patients' quality of life, their functional capacity, but there is evidence to say that exercise can actually be protective for the heart, can protect the heart from damage from cancer therapy, can protect the heart from going into bad heart rhythms. So important, and that's exercise in and of itself. That's not necessarily having a normal, healthy weight. So if patients are overweight, I say try to watch what you're eating. Maybe try to cut back on some of the carbohydrates and starches and try to maintain a healthy weight. If patients are smoking, that's a really tough one because once patients are diagnosed with cancer, that's sort of the make it or break it that they're gonna quit or not. And some patients say, that's it, I'm done. And some patients say, you know what, I've been in this relationship for longer than I've been married to my wife. I can't stop this. But I counsel them and I say, when you're ready to quit, you let me know we have therapists who can talk to you and we have some drugs that can help you quit. And then some patients, for whatever reason, we look at their heart on imaging and I see patients two days a week and I go lab two days a week, the echo is just a fancy term for an ultrasound of the heart. And some patients on their ultrasound of their heart or their echo, there's some signs that maybe the heart muscle is showing signs of weakness, even though the squeeze is normal. So some of those patients we can put on what we call cardioprotective medicines. 
And this is an area that's been studied time and time again. There was just a study that came out this month in one of our big heart journals that included 400 patients, which by cardio-oncology standards is a large number of patients. And maybe putting patients on these drugs routinely can help them survive the cancer without any effect on the heart. In patients who develop heart failure, we give them their standard heart failure therapies that we give for everybody else and we watch them closely. I like to start therapy early so that I can try to prevent any delay in treatment. What I don't want is for the cancer doctor to see something with the heart and get nervous and say, I have to hold your next chemotherapy. I have to hold this life-saving treatment. So I feel my job is sort of an enabler to try to keep the patient's heart healthy so that he or she can keep receiving the cancer therapy without delay and maybe be off of that therapy and get their life back and get back to their kids or back to their spouses sooner rather than later. Do you see any correlation between and uh, So the question is, do we see an association between preeclampsia and cardiotoxicity? And for those who don't know, preeclampsia is a condition in pregnancy where mothers who are pregnant in their third trimester develop high blood pressure, they leak protein, and they can be prone to seizures. The sort of basis behind this that's been studied is due to abnormal constriction within the blood vessels within the placenta, which is the main feeding organ for the fetus. There is a correlation. So whenever I see a female, cancer patient or not in my clinic, I actually ask about their pregnancy history. I say, how many pregnancies? How long did you carry? Did you have preeclampsia, high blood pressure, diabetes during your pregnancy? Because having those things actually puts you at risk later in life for developing cardiac disease. The other interesting thing about preeclampsia as it relates to this talk in particular is that there are some medicines, if you're curious, they're called tyrosine kinase inhibitors, where whenever patients are put on them, they develop pretty high blood pressures to the point where I'll have patients who have to take their blood pressure pill the week that they're on the medicine, the chemotherapy, and stop the week that they're off. And it's actually been studied in the pathophysiology behind that high blood pressure that they develop in response to this medicine is very similar to what goes on when a mother develops preeclampsia when pregnant. So I did mention that sort of the number of patients in these big cardiology or heart trials are in the thousands and then in the cardio-oncology world, they're much fewer. So one thing that we found really important for us is as I'm seeing patients in the cardio-oncology clinic, I actually try to have them sign a consent form and I tell them, you know, there's no physical risk to them, but what we're doing is we're basically saying, hey, can we put you into a database and can we hold on to your blood and tissue that the lab might throw away otherwise so that we can sort of start to collect this cohort and I don't have to call people up five years down the line and so forth because I think sort of this databasing and data banking can really help us to answer some of these questions. You know, the patients are so eager to help, right? Because they say, you know, I'm here because somebody else offered to participate in research to help us come up with therapies. And we do want to expand that basically to try to get tissue from people as well so that we can study these things. The other thing is we're working on a couple projects to identify what we call imaging markers. So things on the echo that can sort of give hints as to who might be at risk for developing weakened heart muscle or other problems after cancer therapy. Yeah, so we, you know, there are some early studies, early data coming out of MCW as well, not for my group, but it does seem that African-American patients are at higher risk for developing not just heart failure in general, but potentially weakened heart muscle after cancer therapeutics.
But this is, I mean, this is a very important area of research. It's research that I think has a lot of potential and it's an area that we really need to improve on. You know, racial disparities are real and we have to focus on giving people equal care and equal diagnoses. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in is we do have all these studies that show that patients can develop a weakened heart muscle after certain chemotherapies, but there are no guidelines right now to routinely look at patients' hearts. And, you know, it used to be that we thought that the doxorubicin, which, which we've mentioned many times, we used to think that there was an early and a late effect and, you know, these childhood survivors of cancer were developing this heart failure years down the line. Well, if you look at adults specifically, it's actually been shown pretty well that if we really studied everybody's hearts within that first year after they received their last dose of chemotherapy, we would pick up most of the patients who are developing a weakened heart muscle. The problem is, is that when patients develop a weakened heart muscle, you can't always tell by looking at them. So it's almost like, you know, heart failure is terrible, but in some ways it protects some patients who have a weakened heart muscle because it gives the doctor a sign that, hey, something's wrong with the heart and we can treat them sooner. And we do know that the sooner that we can treat the patients who develop a weakened heart muscle, the more likely they are to respond to the heart medicines. So I do want to give kind of some silver lining to what seems like a bunch of doom and gloom. So, you know, the reason that the field of cardio-oncology exists is because we are dealing with so many more cancer survivors. So we've just gotten so much better at treating cancer. So if you want to think of it in that way, people are dying more of heart disease because we're much better at treating cancer. The other thing too is you can do things to protect your heart. You know, and I'm not telling you that 100% certainty exercise is gonna mean that your heart's not gonna suffer, but if anybody can take something away, it's, you know, see your doctor and get your exercise, that exercise is so important. And then I do also wanna say that there are a couple cancer therapies where they can affect the heart muscle, but the nice thing is you stop the therapy and the heart muscle goes back to normal. So if we need to, you hold the therapy and the heart muscle can bounce back and you can give them the therapy again. Thank you guys so much for paying attention. Thanks for listening to CTSI Science Cafe. We invite you to join us and be part of our next community conversation. To learn more about CTSI Science Cafe and how you can attend, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Science Cafe is produced by Dr. Oshoya Garrison, co-produced by Brian Belmer. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Doriel Ward and Dr. Reza Shakir.